Welcome to the One Small Change podcast with me, Dr. Simon Chard. I'm a cosmetic dentist, public speaker and startup entrepreneur, but most importantly, I'm a lifelong disciple of self-improvement and optimization. In this podcast, we present conversations with world-class industry leaders, sharing their expertise in high performance, spirituality, business and health. It's my job to dissect their key behaviours, routines and mindsets so that you can implement them today to create balance and success in your life. Today's episode is brought to you by Enlightened Tooth Whitening. As a cosmetic dentist, I've used Enlightened to provide tooth whitening results for my patients since I qualified. And the reason that I always come back to Enlightened is they guarantee that B1 result that means my patients are always happy with the outcome. So if you're a dentist, I'd thoroughly recommend reaching out to Enlighten to do one of their free online training courses. And if you're a patient, have a chat with your dentist today about Enlighten Tooth Whitening or even look out for one of their regional centres of excellence. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to episode 16 of the One Small Change podcast. On today's show, we have James McMaster, CEO of one of the fastest growing companies in the country, Huel. Now, for those of you that haven't heard of them, I imagine there's only a few of you out there, but if you haven't heard of them, Huel is described as the future of food. They're on a mission to make nutritionally complete, convenient, affordable food with minimal impact on animals and the environment. So that that speaks to me very, very strongly. Uh, And I use their their flagship product, the powdered form, as part of my morning smoothie every single day. I had it this morning as well. Uh, And to say that the brand has been popular would be a a massive understatement. In the last five years, uh, six years now, sorry, Huel has grown to selling over 100 million meals, being sold in over 100 countries and having an annual turnover of 100 million pounds. Our guest today joined in 2017 as their CEO to try and steer this rocket ship of a business following successful times at Goopards, Ellis Kitchen and Up and Go. So I'm super excited uh, to, to listen and learn from James today. James has been incredibly generous, uh, not only coming on this show, but also uh, with his advice for me in my own startup journey. And we're very proud at Parlour to have him as one of our customers as well. Yeah. So uh, welcome, James. How you doing? Thank you. Thank you. I think I was one of your first customers, actually. Well, you were? Was, well, when, when, was your, when, when was the launch date? Uh, March. March. Yeah, it was March or April that I bought. So um, lovely to spend time with you after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think when I saw your name pop up on our... When, when you've just launched, you, you look at basically every name of the people that are buying yeah. your products. <laughs> so when I saw your name on there, I thought, oh, wow, I wonder if it's actually James. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so uh, James, I want to start um, just right at the start. I, I like to go back to the origin stories of our guests to to find out what really makes them tick. So you you didn't start your life in in startup world. You started it um, in the city uh, as a management consultant. I understand. So how did you make that transition from sort of the corporate lifestyle over to this sort of more well very different startup lifestyle? Yeah, so I, I was. I think it's really hard when you're younger to know exactly what to do, and even when people get a bit older, they're not sure what their career best role is. I got a bit lucky in that I tried a few things out early on. So I did a, I did a gap year before university, and I tried out accounting, realised that wasn't for me. Then I did a summer internship and did banking, realised there was some good bits and bad bits of that, but, but wasn't for me. And then I loved consulting; that was my graduate job. And then what I realised is you worked on these really cool projects and then you sort of left the company to it to go and do your next project and 
I was always wondering, well, what happens then? And I, I uh, did a project for a company that were looking to buy a food and drink brand. And that was our project, was go and find us someone to buy and tell us how much we should buy and whether we should, etc. And one of the brands on the list was Goo. And it got ruled off the list for being too small because I think it was under the 5 million turnover, whatever the, uh, the, um, the, the, the level was. And then I realised that the guy that founded it, Jim, he was an ex-strategy consultant and I wanted to start my own brand. So I randomly called him one day and said, look, I'm a consultant like you and what you were and uh, you've got a brand, can I meet up with you? And then we did and we, um, it was during the day I remember vividly because it was in a building in Shepherd's Bush where there was a bar in the building and for me it was a rare day off and it was in the afternoon and I was going to a concert in the evening so I was in quite a kind of happy mood. And he said, would you like a drink? And I was like, oh, yeah, beer, thank you. And he said, okay, well, I'm having a cup of tea. You have a beer. Um, <laughs> That's brilliant. Sort of, um, and just sort of hit it off. And then, and then yeah, he, he said, come, come and join us. That was my, my move. So something, something must have been drawing me into food and drink brands. And, and that was my, my switch, really, into, to, to that. And that's, that's all I've done ever since. So you didn't go to that meeting looking for a job? He just, I went to he just, starting a brand, basically, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And he just offered you the job there and then, did he? Uh, no, I met someone else, uh, Fiona, who also does, does a podcast these days as well. And, oh, Fiona Fitzgerald. Uh, uh, Fitzpatrick, yeah. Oh, Fitzpa- Fitzpatrick, um, sorry, yes. And and then they sort of created a role for me, sort of business development manager, which was a bit of sales, a bit of marketing, a bit of analytical stuff, and then went from there. Brilliant, love it. And uh, you mentioned Fiona there, and from what I've seen from the from the guys who were working with you at that time at Goo, it seems like a lot of those people went on to either start their own startups from there or become CMOs of massive brands or CEOs of massive brands. Uh, and I saw a quote from James um, that said that he was asked uh, if he had to invest £100 million in one individual, who would it be? And he said, you, which it must have been uh, quite a nice thing to hear. <laughs> Is that a correct quote or have I paraphrased that no, incorrectly? Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, uh, he, he was a great picker of people. So we we had a, a wonderful team and everyone was entrepreneurial but they hadn't started it right it wasn't their business but they felt like it was their business and something about the the way we did things made people have the confidence to to try stuff out and to you know lots of companies go oh this is the way we've always done things and actually at goo we're very good at saying well let's just do what we think's right and there's just a lovely spirit so we're very hard working um, people mucked in a lot and, you know, would go to festivals at weekends and um, hand out sp- spoon upon spoon of chocolate mousse and chocolate dessert to see what customers thought. So it, it taught you a lot about how to understand the customer and also like hard work, like going there, making the stock happen, being on it and fr- friendly and smiley all day long to to listen to customers. And, it you know, just it was quite, it's quite raw and it's an amazing experience for me to switch from sort of the consulting sort of businessy world into into kind of the brand world and um yeah a lot of the team has some really cool stuff since then so we had something kind of special there that moved on with us all absolutely yeah there's, there's nothing quite like the direct feedback of a customer trying the product right in front of you is there i spent a lot of my university careers working as um for various uh experimental marketing companies handing out various uh, freebies and it's quite um sorry if you hear my daughter screaming in the background there um it's um it's quite intense and you, you learn a lot about um interaction with other people i think 
So after your time at Goo, you then went on to another absolutely massive brand, um, which is Ella's Kitchen. Uh, how, how was your time there? What did you learn from, from that? I mean, that was been, again, um, a very interesting place to work. Yeah, it's funny. If I, if I think back, actually, I, I didn't have kids then. I, I reckon I would have done a much better job if I actually had a young, a young kid to understand everything, everything going on. But I, maybe it was quite good that I, I wasn't and I could think about it with, with fresh eyes as well. So I think you're very much uh, when you have these experiences, uh, different growth brands, you, you learn as much about the brand as you do from the people you're working with. So, again, the, the founder was Paul Lindley really well known and done mm. a lot of great stuff since then as well. And he just was a different character and taught me a different set of skills and experiences. And we as a team grew incredibly quickly internationally. And, you know, when I went there, most baby food at the time was bought in glass jars with, with sort of goopy brown liquid. And we switched it to colorful pouches, which are very, tactile and noisy and fun and kind of children first and, and all about the relationships with food. So I think it taught me about brand, it taught me about culture, and I think also the person. So when you go into kind of consulting and finance and all that world, there's less of a kind of human element to it. It's much more about just sort of numbers and what stuff gets done. And then you go into kind of companies with, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 people, and it's, 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 it's about people. And, and getting stuff done. And Paul helped me develop as, a, as an individual and understand myself better. And then I learned a lot about how to create a culture and copied, since then I've copied a lot, a lot of things that he, he taught me at, at Ella's Kitchen. So just different experiences of different brands teach you different things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, were there any consistencies that you saw between those two brands that, that you have taken on into Huel? Uh, so we, we have a phrase which is you muck in together. Um, and for instance, at Huel, we had a big flood in our office um, before, just before lockdown. And basically everyone downs tools, everyone's got the mops and trying to sort stuff out. And there's very, we try and make sure there's very little hierarchy. And we talk about make customers happy. And again, that's sort of very consistent at Goo, very consistent at Ella's Kitchen, very consistent at Huel. You, you, you learn to know that if you're going to beat the big boys and try to do something new you've got to, you've got to be even better at making sure customers are going to try your product when they've basically never heard of it before right if you're mm. if you're a big brand people buy coca-cola because they've heard of it really yeah it's sort of security isn't it and they're just sort of prompting front of mind awareness the whole time whereas a brand you've never heard of you're taking a leap of faith so how do you make that happen well you need to work harder your packaging needs to be good the product needs to be good the pr needs to be good the team customer service needs to be incredible like every single touch point needs to be top notch and and that and when you're when you're the underdog as you are in a growth business it sort of teaches you to always be trying that much harder i think yeah i love that i, I love that point on mucking in as well it reminds me of um i read a book from the one of the top coaches from the new zealand rugby team and um they have that exact same philosophy obviously for those of you that don't uh, watch rugby new zealand are renowned as one of the best teams ever um and actually in, in all sport, I think they've got one of the highest success rates of, of any team in any sport, which is crazy. But the um, the captain and, and like the sort of the top try scorers after the game, uh, instead of sort of spraying the champagne and, and celebrating and all of that sort of thing, uh, they're the ones that are left in the locker room at the end sweeping up. Uh, and I thought that was a great analogy for, for all business, yeah. really. I looked at two, two things. So A, I'm half Kiwi, so I'm kind of really into the rugby and New Zealand. Um, secondly, when we, we built a culture book at Huel about three years ago, and we used that exact that thing there, they call it sweeping the sheds is their mm. thing. 
and it's very much that mucking together. And when we had our our flood, you know, there's me there and our founder, Julian, there, and we're kind of pushing stuff along. And it, that, that just happened naturally. But we took a photo of that, and that's now in our culture book to say, look, look, that's here, brilliant. you avoid the hierarchy, you avoid the politics, and you, you get stuff done and you speak your mind. Yeah, no one's too big to do the small things, right? I bet you love the color, the colorways of of fuel. Then aligns with your uh, all blacks background. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we've got um, we've got an electric car scheme here, which is really really cool. Really proud of how we've moved forward with that, and pretty much everyone's gone for a black or a white car. <laughs> and once that's happened, maybe it's hard to go for a red car or something if you want to do from that one. <laughs> yeah, comes to the territory. What, what's the scheme out of interest? I've, I've got a white Tesla with um, with black rims, actually, so I can come and work for you guys anytime. <laughs> it's based off the same thing as the cycle to work scheme. So the money that you would have paid or you do pay in tax, they, they basically grab that money that's that's gone and use it towards a car as long as it's an electric car. So you basically rent an electric car and we partner with a company called Octopus Electric Vehicles and they've yep. done a really great job with us. So there's about 10 people now out of a you know 100 odd, 150 um, and it's building quite quickly and we've got some charges we've installed at HQ as well. So it's move, moving forward quickly towards the electric car re- revolution. That's brilliant. Yeah, no, once you go electric, it's very difficult to go back uh, to a, to a tra- traditional combustion engine. Everything feels very slow, I find. <laughs> Um, brilliant. So let's let's move on to Huel then. Um, you, you've been there since 2017. I think probably the best place to start is for you just to describe what the brand's all about from, from your point of view as a CEO for those that don't know that much about you guys. So we make nutritionally complete food, which is food that's got all the protein, carbohydrates, fats, fibre and all 26 vitamins and minerals that your body needs. If I maybe take back to, to mission, that's that's mission statement behind my head. So some of the challenges we've got in the world today are high food wastage, right? So 30% of the food that we create for human consumption is wasted. We've got 7 billion people in the world, of which 1 billion are in food poverty. They don't have enough food. And then you've got 70% of the developed world who are either obese or overweight. And then you've got people running around trying to have fast food, but most fast food is junk food. And you've got people spending a lot of money on, on food unnecessarily at times. So all these different factors come in where we're, we're providing healthy fast food that's low carbon footprint and therefore good for the planet. And it's, it's something that has just struck a chord since we launched um, coming up to six years ago. And we initially launched in a, in a powder, which is a mix of products like pea and rice and oats and coconut and flaxseed and and that whole combination gives you the nutrition you need and you add it to water um, shake it up and you you have that as your meal and you choose the number of calories like me i usually go for you know 400 to 600 depending how hungry i am you might go for 200 as a a snack size and there's no wastage involved with it Mm -hmm. and it's shelf stable so it ticks like a million boxes and i think also being being plant-based in the last year or two we've noticed that trend just really accelerate so yeah because it ticks only boxes it's just it's just gone bananas and we're we're now selling in 100 100 countries around the world and growing very quickly and um almost all our sales coming through fuel.com and we're up to about 150 people so it's just been an incredible roller coaster crazy journey to 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 where we where we got to now and and has the how has the pandemic affected you guys has it been uh, i imagine it's led to probably more business for you isn't it yeah overall uh 
if I go back to sort of March then, so March went, March 2020, we could barely stay in stock and we were struggling to get uh, transport happening and, and uh, warehouses stopping and, and production stopping because of people having COVID in the factories and stuff. And then with a huge spike in sales and then followed by a bit of a drop off in sales. And then at various times since then, it's been up and down depending on lockdown. And what we're finding the last few months is sales are sort of rocketing again with people being pace of life being a bit stronger. And also sort of, you know, when you're stuck at home, I think people just sort of go to the fridge every five seconds because they're bored and uh, there's been a lot of overeating and um, people where they're having kind of the wrong food or spending too much money on food or they're kind of cooking a lot. And now I think people are going, Do you know, what? I'm, I want to be, I want to be out and about again. And we're, we're very useful when you're wanting fast food. That's not, not bad for you. So yeah, at the moment we're, we're just absolutely flying. Yeah. That's, that's the beauty of fuel for me. If I'm, if I'm in a rush in between meetings and I just need to get something in me because I'm getting hangry normally. Um, it's perfect. It's perfect for that anti hangry, uh, activity. Um, so uh, one of the things that I, I love about Huel is is the brand, the branding, the T-shirts. Um, is, is that something that um, has been quite easy for you guys? Is it something that you're still, I mean, it's, it's quite a simple brand, but why do you think it's resonated so much? Oh, I think combination of things. So from, from a look and feel point of view, yes, it's very minimal and quite purist and some people say to us sort of Apple-esque and, and sort of less is more sometimes from a how it's positioned, we're very, very transparent, both in terms of how we are with the team, how we are with customers. We actually group everyone together and call them hooligans. And actually, we didn't come up with that name. So our, our customers call themselves hooligans. And then we thought, well, hang on, we want to be a modern brand where there's, there's less of a divide between your customer and the people that work there. And you're all one group, really. So we're all we're all hooligans. And I think that works quite quite well and that's how that's how there's a stronger level of trust particularly as we're effectively we're a new category and a lot of people are kind of like oh well, you you take this powder and you you convert it to a liquid and you drink it and that's a, it's a new thing for most people so how we help how do we help convince them that this is something they should try and, and a lot of that is the simplicity and the transparency around it i think the the direct consumer approach is is big too in that if you are trying to build a brand when you're going through a traditional store it might take years and years and years to get a listing with the retailer you want to get a listing with but actually when you're online it's kind of finding access to things you want and that's how i found you guys by the way i got i got a a parlor ad on instagram and my brain i'm quite into sort of trying new stuff and i was like oh that's cool i instinctively got it in about five seconds from a few um pictures probably like a carousel ad you were doing and I did it. And actually, if I hadn't have had that, then I wouldn't discover it. So I think sharing and word of mouth and social has been a big part of how the brand has built quickly. It's clearly something people want to need and at the exact right moment in life where, or the exact right moment in time where people are realizing the impact of their food choices. So agriculture is the biggest contributor to, to carbon footprint in the world. And people are very unaware of that. And suddenly for decades people talk about planes and cars and combustion engines but even now i feel like there's, there's very little known about that but now it's starting to happen They're like hey hang on i should have meat 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 free monday and i should have lower lower carbon footprint food on it and and, and plant-based eating and veganism is all growing at the same time so i think it's, it's a combination of brand and timing that's led to the, the last couple of years of success 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm interested to know how how do you fit fuel into your own um, diet plan? Are you are you vegan? Are you sort of meat based, or how, how do you fit, fit it in yourself? So I'm I'm quite typical actually. So we all have roughly 21 meals a week, seven days a week, three meals a day, and I have fuel. Monday to Friday, breakfast and lunch in the office, plus my snacks in the office as well. But if you just think about the meals for a second. So without trying, half of my weekly meals are plant-based and vegan. Yeah. And then the others, you know, there's a good proportion of plant-based as well, but I'm sort of less worried about it in the evening and weekends because I'm sort of so good during the week. And yeah. I think what people find is, you, know, you think about those 21 meals, often people go, wow, I didn't realize there's you know, quite so many. It's not an obvious thing. But every couple of hours, you're thinking about your next snack, or your next meal. And it's quite exhausting. And we're an mm. easy way to go, do you know what? Don't spend the money. Don't, don't have bad, um, bad food for your, for your body. And we're, we're a simple solution to that. And I think uh, we talk about entertainment food. So would I have Huel Saturday night with my friends or family? <laughs> No, I wouldn't. Serve it at the dinner table. <laughs> um, but equally, you know, on Monday morning at 9am, should I be having this great big roast dinner and spending hours cooking and chopping things? No, so there's a time and a place. And I think we've lost that bit in society. And, and we, we talk about inconvenient meals being basically most of your meals where you don't want to spend lots of time and money for it and you want, you want good food. And that's where we fit in really nicely. And that's, and that's me and fellow hooligans. That's a lot of what we do is split our mindset into those two different types. And I think there's something, there's a, almost like an assumption sometimes from people that um, people who have Huel just have Huel and they don't like food and equally you can be a foodie like me, but still like um, Huel and still like um, having a traditional food for entertainment. Yeah, absolutely. Super. So, you, I mean, you mentioned there that you're around 150 um, team members now. Um, is, that, is that the biggest team that you've led yourself personally? Yes. Yep. Yeah. And, and, um, and how, how have you found um, that? Because I've, I've heard a lot of founders speak about when you get to a certain number, it becomes very much more difficult to maintain that culture. Is there anything that you guys are doing to, to implement and to maintain that sort of strong Huligan attitude into a bigger team. So there's a concept called Dunbar. I think it might be called Dunbar's 150 or something, and it and it, it goes it goes back to ancient tribes uh, and things like the military, where once you get to 150 people, it's really hard to stay as one group. It's really yeah. hard to form a meaningful relationship with each of those 150 individuals. So we've talked about that openly recently. So we have a a an all hands meeting every two weeks. We call it all Hooligans, obviously. And and I brought up recently, said, any ideas? And actually someone came up to me after and said, well, this is a company they've worked out where they actually discussed the exact same thing. So we're, we're going through that right now. I think one thing we've done which will help us is we're quite big on codifying things. So we created a culture book that's about 60 slides long. And it's very text and image heavy. And it tells you about what we believe in and, and how to do things. And we've got a communications book on how we think you should communicate. And if you didn't do that, then people just join in. And what happens is you end up learning what the person next to you says. And they say, oh, this is how you do things. And suddenly you end up this very disparate group of people all, I don't know, not singing from the same hymn sheet. And, hymn sheet. and what we do is we, I think we're quite tight as a group and we work really hard to just evolve each time we get bigger. And we're doing that same process now. Like how do we, how do we evolve now? We're going to be sort of two, three, four hundred people in the coming years. How do we do things differently to make that happen? I think the other thing that's been different for us early on is we've always had quite a few offices. So we've got a, uh, an HQ in Hertfordshire. 
we've got an office in London, we've got an office in Birmingham, we've got one in New York. So we've always had to try a little bit harder to try and keep everyone together when we're in different locations. That was super handy for lockdown. And we've been using Zoom beforehand for a long time. So we, we've always tried hard at it and we need to try even harder now as we get, as we get bigger in the next phase. And do you think that uh, now in this sort of post, um, post-coronavirus time that those big offices are still really important to you or do you think that you'll move more towards um, working from home and, and having less physical space? Yeah, big debate. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I personally think it depends a lot on the type of company you are. So I know some of the kind of large uh, professional services firms are saying, look, we don't always need you in the office as much and you can kind of work from home. And you know, I've got a friend who's a lawyer. He said, look, a lot of what I do anyway is by myself and I can sort of get it done. I think for us, we're mm. a much more creative business and constantly, you know, I'll walk around the office today and talk about stuff and we'll think about problems we didn't know existed or ideas of improvements and the energy levels we get being here there's a lot of smiling and i'm not, I'm not trying to pretend it's not sort of like hard work and and difficult times but generally like there's a lot of lovely energy and you don't get that in the same way of being home so i think i for us yeah definitely we keep keeping going with offices we we're actually going to expand our hq at the end of the year and then we just signed a few new leases for bigger offices for new york that we moved into uh, a few months back and then we've got a new office in Birmingham that can hold twice as many people a new office in London that can hold twice as many people so we're going to be predominantly office-based ongoing and we we think companies that are going to be kind of you know, purely remote are going to have a bit of a problem but I, I do think the world's moved on a little bit and we've we definitely become more flexible so we're allowing a little bit of um, working from home during the week as well so it's just sort of I don't know figuring it out a little bit I think later this year if things are hopefully sort of have been back to normal for a good few months, people will take stock and go, is it working? Is it not about how they're currently set up? And I think a few companies have jumped the gun a bit on either saying no change in flexibility and others saying, hey, work as many hours as you want, whenever you want, from wherever you want. Not sure yeah. that's quite right. Yeah, as, as with everything, it, it will fall somewhere in the middle, I guess, right? Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of my listeners will be interested to to hear a bit about what your day-to-day -day is like as a CEO of, of a brand like Huel. I think the term CEO has quite an interesting sort of, lots of different thoughts come to mind with that term. But what's your, at the moment, I mean, it'd be quite interesting to know, firstly, five, oh, what, 2017, when you first joined, what was your day-to-day -day like and how's that developed over time now that you're in a, in a, in a bigger business, I guess? In terms of how it's developed, I I have done and continue to spend a lot of time on on people and team building, and a lot of that for me is constantly thinking about where where are we next going to, and then what is the work I'm currently doing, and trying to hand that up to other people and keep moving backwards. Otherwise, I won't be able to do the stuff that we need to be doing. So. Yeah, you know, back in the day, I'd do anything and everything. And now it makes more sense for other people to do that who are either better than me at doing it, or actually there's other things that are right for me to be doing for the team to give better guidance and direction on, on what we're doing. I think uh, in terms of a, an average day, that's useful. So I, I get up quite early and I find to be happy in, in life and sort of have the right energy. I, I quite enjoy working out each day. So usually uh, we've got a really cool gym in HQ. So pretty much most mornings in the gym or I do tennis and I do tennis once a, once a week and 
nice chap called Sam trains me at 715 um, down the road. Um, so I, so I usually leave before the kids get up and get to, get to the office, get stuff done. And I try not to stay very late. And that's something we've got culturally as, as a big deal. So I'm usually gone by five. And then I've got two young kids, they're three and they're five. And that's my chance to spend time with them and have fun and bath time and stories and things. And I think maybe in the past, actually, pre-Huel, I've been a bit too bit too many hours or too too hard working during during the during the day and um not necessarily had the energy in the same way so but we 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 talk about a marathon not a sprint right and if you if you burn out it's not a good place to be so it's like work hard and 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 enjoy what you're doing but don't go to the point where you're burning out and we we, we I do an induction with everyone when they join and I, and I say that it's like look it's a marathon not a sprint so um, and then during the day, uh, yes, lots of meetings. We talk about trying to keep meetings short and sweet. And every kind of six months or so, I find, I find myself saying the same thing, like, guys, can we just try and bring the meetings down a bit and be a bit more productive? So we do lots of pre-reads to try and avoid that happening. And we have, um, we have Slack is actually become really important for us in communicating and people sharing stuff, particularly with, between different offices. Um, we do a board meeting once a month, which is about four hours long, which I really enjoy. It forces me in particular to summarize what are we doing, what's going well, what do we need to do differently, both in the short term and the long term. Um, so they're kind of little snippets, maybe. Happy yeah. to go into more detail on the bits that are interesting. Do you, do you have to travel much? Obviously, you've got multiple international off. Obviously, not at the moment, but pre-coronavirus yeah so i would go to new york every sort of couple of months and hang out with the team there and then london office they're coming here more often um occasionally get us some suppliers and things as well but yeah so travel sort of small medium rather than crazy and interestingly we're, we're sort of saying look some of those relationships you might already have the kind of world of world of video post post covid you don't have to be traveling as much for those things i think america's a bit different i think I think traveling will still carry on there more than it does here. There's it's a much kind of you know, bigger country and people are used to sort of more of a personal connection face to face. So I think that will keep happening. So when I'm allowed to this summer, hopefully I'll be able to go and um, spend time with the US team who I haven't seen since December 19 um, when we had our Christmas party over there. Yeah. Which feels like a very long time away. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm always interested to hear about the hard the hard things as opposed to um, all the all the good things. And I'm sure being a CEO for such a big brand um, is challenging. Uh, what, 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 are the, what are the hardest parts of, um, of your job and, and how do you find you manage those? Well, there's always the impossible, how do you get everything you want to get done? And, and that is impossible, it's about how do you prioritize? So I find that I need to have a combination of time to myself and sometimes you can be so busy trying to talk to people and be in meetings that you don't have any thinking time. I think COVID's taught me that a little bit actually, sort of because you've been at home a bit a bit more with yourself that you kind of realise that to give everyone else better direction, that's quite an important thing to do. Um, I enjoy being with people though. So I, I, I find like being with people each day, walking around, I kind of pick up what's going on and um, that makes my job easier if I understand that. And I, you know, I'm quite keen on surveys and things. So we do, we do a survey every six months to our team 
and it's very much and we measure net promoter score like as in them net promoter score and that for me is a big source of how to get stuff done and understand where we need to be going and pivoting and things so they're some of the key things for me brilliant and uh, the team are obviously so important for you guys at uh, here how how do you manage um new hires uh, into the team i think that's one of the hardest things we've done a few new hires recently at parlor and it's um and in my own dental clinic as well, I find it very, very difficult. Um, I've made some big mistakes in the past, bringing someone in um, who uh, doesn't fit the culture of the team. How do you, how do you guys uh, manage that difficult part of, of owning a business? So recruitment is something we, we, we definitely over-index on. So a lot of us spend a good proportion of time on it. So I think the three things that I think of a lot when we do as a company is who do you hire? How do you onboard them? And then how do you make sure things are flowing nicely when, when people are sort of here day to day? And I think no one's got some magic answer on recruitment, have they? Um, there was interesting, I was chatting with someone yesterday after our All Hooligans meeting, and they were saying there's something about the mindset at Huel in terms of the people we hire. And it must be to do with when we interview and meet people who we choose to bring forward. There's a lot of diversity here in terms of age and ethnicity and, and language mm. and... Um, we're kind of 50-50 male-females. So it's a really good mix of people, but somehow there's a there's a similar mindset, and we seem to spot that. We do a few things like we've got a, a, um, a culture check when we do interviews. So two people are selected to just do. They're not asking them about their job whether they're good enough, but it's someone we're about to hire, and they're asked to say, "Is there a reason why you wouldn't hire this person?" And that's been quite successful for us. There's a few little things have, have changed there. And uh, we do, like I myself, I like going on LinkedIn and finding people. Um, we do a lot of referrals as now, so we encourage the team. I can't remember how much it is now. It's probably about 500 quid where if you find, if you refer someone for a job, you get you get a referral fee for that. And there's, there's quite a bit of that going on where there's an extra level of trust maybe that they might fit in. Um, and it's surprising how good people's network is when you ask them to find someone who might be good for a role. But also I found in the last, I don't know, last year or two, as our brands got bigger, we get a lot more approaches. So, you know, back in the day, it'd be like we'd have to kind of convince people that we're a legit business and that we're going places. And now it's like, you know, you refer to us as a big brand. In my head, I don't see us as a big brand yet, but we we, we, we are in some people's heads and we get a lot of approaches. And that means maybe we're fishing in a, in a bigger pond and that's kind of cool to not have to always look for people ourselves and have them come to us. Yeah, absolutely. That definitely makes it a lot easier, doesn't it? Um, a lot of a lot of the uh, listeners of the show are, are business owners themselves, and um, I think it'd be remiss of me not to to ask a question sort of t- directed directly at them. So one of the things that is so incredible about Huel is the the speed at which you've grown. Um, and I was wondering if there's anything that you think uh, that you could pick out uh, as elements that have led to that exponential growth, but also a sustainable growth. I mean, it's not a short-term sort of high sales peak to then sort of flip the business. It's, it seems to be like a long, a longer um, thought process. I'd probably start with product. If you haven't got a product that people are going to want in a at least you know mass premium way, you're sort of pushing water uphill. And... I can I can just see so many different. There are so many different types of fuel customers. There are students. There are bankers, lots of money who want to save time. There are people who care about nutrition. There are people who want to have more plant based food. The list goes on, right? And 
So we've got the right category, we're creating a new category, we've got the right product. Brand and look and feel, it has to be something that that, that resonates and, and is distinctive. And I think once you, so when I joined Hewlett, we had that momentum, then we just carried it on. And I, I think a lot of that is like we said about who you pick to join the company and the decisions you make. I think it's very interesting at the moment is there's a lot of growth going on of businesses where they're happy to lose loads and loads of money each year and sort of fake growth. Yeah, that's, um, that's what I was getting saying. at. <laughs> yeah, and, and we, you know, we, 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 we don't make lots of money, but we, we, we just about make a little bit of money each year um, from a profit point of view. So we're quite proud that we are growing quickly, but not, not burning through cash all the time to get there. And I think the other one probably for us is going international. And I, I learned this from... Ella's Kitchen. Uh, I remember we had a, a copycat brand in another another country, and by the time we got to that country, we were seen as the copycat. I thought, oh man, I'm not going to have that again. So we we um, we're in lots of countries, wanting to kind of plant flags down in these countries and make sure that we're the we're the the early pioneer in those countries. And I, and I think that makes it more complicated. And it's meant the pace is ridiculously fast here, but it's made us the most global player in complete food, complete food and Huel is seen as the global player. So we, we purposely went international really early. Uh, and I think e-com is the other one. And, you know, it's much, Huel, we looked at it a while ago. So um, the Sunday, Sunday Times fast track list, we are, you know, been in there a few times as a, as a super fast growing business from the UK. And if you look at the numbers, we were much bigger than, say, Innocent Drinks and Brewdog and um, Fever Tree at the same moment of time of like, you know, three, four, five years old. So um, what what changed us was versus those brands is that we're e-com. So I think e-com does allow you to grow quickly rather than waiting for a retail uh, buyer to choose to list you or not. And I think it's quite nice in the post-COVID world, there's more of that going on, which hopefully allows more super fast growth companies to keep happening in the coming years. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely makes it a lot easier. How how did you manage the international nature at an early stage? Because it's one one discussion that we've had with Impala is we don't want to spread our tails too thin and then not capitalize on our own market, our own home market, if that makes sense. So did you just have a big enough team at that time? Were you growing fast enough? Is that what allowed you to do it? Or was there anything in particular that you that you leveraged on to achieve that? Uh, I think a little bit is about structure. So we, we've changed a little bit. So uh, in the early days in the US, it was a bit more decentralized. So there was a US team and someone to run the US. And as we built up the kind of central team over here, there was a bit of crossover of, hang on, who's in charge of which products we launch in that market? Who's in charge of what the look and feel is like? Who's in charge of the operations of that market, et cetera? And, We've, we've evolved to model of being much more central. So we have, most things are based from HQ here. And we do have a US team, which are specialists in customer service and specialists in operations. And that works really well. I'm sure we'll keep keep building up in terms of more, more functions as we go. But um, we also had a, an office in Berlin and that was harder to get the culture quite right. And, and, and again, the same challenge of who, who does what. So yeah, I think, We've gone international and we've done it mainly from a centralized team model here. The downside of that is you're not sometimes on the right time zone or you don't have the right language abilities. But what we've managed to do is find a lot of people who are from different countries. So if I go look around HQ, you've got Italian people, Polish people, Japanese, um, 
um, German, like just this Swedish, this kind of hot pot of different cultures, which has actually made the whole team, I think, more more interesting and it's more rounded. Um, but we're in this kind of business park in Hertfordshire, it's quite a kind of a surreal thing to have that. Yeah, absolutely. One of the um, the big launches, I think it was last year I saw from you guys, was the uh, the savoury range, which um, I haven't I have to admit, I haven't tried it yet, but. Um, was that um, was that a big leap for you guys? It, it seems like quite. A, I don't know of any other product like it. I mean, you can kind. Of, I know this is blasphemy, but you can kind of see a, a similarity between like a, a protein shake and normal Huel that I use every day. Even though Huel is obviously far superior to that, but it's just, it's chocolate and chocolate. Do you know what I mean? Vanilla and vanilla. This is this is hot and spicy. <laughs> so, um, what what was the whole thought process behind that NP, that new product development and um, and how's it been going? You know, I said earlier how we, we think about Huel customers and employees being sort of the same. There's a, there's a really, really close link there where every day we're talking about what people want and what we can do. So, you know, wanting a savoury Huel has been a request since very, very early days. It's just how to do that. Do you do it in a shake, which is quite difficult to do, or do you do it in a, in a, in a, in a more you know, traditional meal? The other thing is... I think sometimes people look at Huel and they're not quite ready for the concept of drinking your lunch, say, but they are in terms of using a spoon. So it all just came together as a way of going, well, we could kind of kill two birds with one stone. And it's a, people were interested in the idea of complete food. They want to have an easy way of having all the nutrition, but they still want to have it as something they can use a spoon and that's warm and they can chew. And suddenly that's, that's where it came from. So it's gone incredibly well for us. And we've got a range of six now. And suddenly you've got powder, ready to drink bottles and bars now hot and savoury. It's a much bigger mix. And we we talked about earlier what I have. I often have hot and savoury for lunch and historically I'd have powder for breakfast and lunch. So it just gives you a bit more variety and feedback's been great for people saying the exact same thing. Or they, they, they enjoy the fact that they can just have a bit more um, change in what they're having, but they still want Huel pretty much Monday to Friday breakfast and lunch. Brilliant. And um, as as far as you can you can tell us whatever is in, in, out there in the ether, um, what's what's up next for Huel? For what 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 are you guys moving into that you're uh, if, if anything if you're allowed to tell me anything? <laughs> uh, something what I can tell you um, probably not very much. <laughs> uh, we are so yeah, innovation's a biggie for us. We're always trying new things out, and that might be a product or it might be how we do things from a team point of view I think that's quite important actually so we we're, we're never finished we're, we're always trying to improve stuff and that might be how you do meetings or how you communicate with each other or it might be a product that customers see or it might be some change to our website so we talk about the kind of the end-to-end -end customer experiences arriving on our site checking out easily order um, arriving quickly and perfectly understanding the product liking the product and then um, having contact with us and buying again. And that loop, every aspect of that loop is innovation. And that's, we've got a million things we're working on that are coming out this year, next year. I think we're looking a bit further ahead than we used to um, in terms of the stage in business we're at. So we talk about organized chaos. So I, I refer to <laughs> us right now as being in a sort of organized chaos phase, whereas when we were a startup, it was disorganized chaos. Right. And I think the chaos bit's important. If you, if you start being too perfect and never ch never changing your mind on stuff then you become a bit slow moving and you miss what's going on around you so i think everyone here gets that and we explain it at interview when they're here that we are going to move quickly we do have plans we're getting more and more structure more and more foundation but you 
we, we like ideas and we like moving with the times and, and being innovative. Yeah, I think that's really important. Certainly, I'm in the disorganised chaos section of, uh, of Parlour at the moment. <laughs> Actually, we've got one thing coming out, which is in the disorganised chaos phase. And, and I brought that up saying, look, it feels uncomfortable because it's in the disorganised chaos phase. And pretty much most people here are now used to the next phase where you've gone past the startup. And I think the kind of penny dropped a bit for a few people on that thing we're doing. Why, why it's so painful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Um, I mean, in Fala, we we often joke there's no such thing as a, as a day off or, or a holiday from a startup because you're so passionate about it. You're on it all the time. If an Instagram post goes out and it's got the wrong copy on it, you feel that you immediately need to go and, and edit it. And if a customer's unhappy, you want to try and solve it. Um, I'm sure you, you've been in this game for a lot longer than I have. Um, it's, it, you, you're driven by the passion and, and that keeps you going. But you, like me, have two kids. Yours are about a couple of years older than mine. How, how do you balance that, that challenge of being super passionate about what you do, super successful at what you do, but also making time for, for friends and family and that sort of thing as well? It's a, it's a good point. It's one of the things I find the hardest. I am naturally very excited by what we do. I... I, I, I you know, people talk about work-life balance and I, I like the phrase work-life blend and it, that kind of makes sense to me. I will find that I can't just, def I can't define my day and say, right, during those hours, I'm going to be on work and the other days I'm not on work. And sometimes I'm brushing my teeth and something comes Good. to me. Good, glad to hear it. Um, <laughs> with, your, with your tabs. And some, like, you know, embarrassingly, but sometimes I'm, reading a story to my kids in the evening and I can't help but think about a thing that happened a work thing and yeah. you know that's I'm sure most people who listen to that will think you know what a bad person and I I not at I all know, I'm thinking I've, I'm thinking exactly the same <laughs> you know, maybe it's something about how I am that makes me good at what I do rather than a bad thing I don't know but I I, I tell you what I have done is I have got better at it and I think you know talk about kids I think kids does help so pre-kids I, I remember my wife and I often most weekends having our laptops out and it was the, it was the thing we got into just doing a few hours each weekend and doing stuff and I, I'm much better now at switching off and I think I'm I'm probably better for people in the office and and in the other offices we have when I'm in a kind of fresh mood if you work a bit too hard and you come in and you're sort of a bit down a bit tired so I've, I've come to prioritize sleep massively and particularly when you've got young kids, you're like, oh, my God, you know, as soon as they start kind of sleeping through the night, you're like, this is brilliant. And yeah, I'm not so I'm I, not there yet. My my smallest is uh, about seven weeks old. So that's, weeks, that's, oh, that's not you're that's not the, happening at the moment. You're in the bad, the bad place. The trenches. So, so, yeah. Fast forward a, a few more months and you can kind of go, right, how do I organize my life so I can get decent sleep? Because it will make me feel happy as a person. And it's the same as exercise. It'll make you feel happy as a person. So. You know, being good at work isn't just the hours you put in, it's the creativity you have, it's the, the people around you, it's the exercise you do, it's the food you eat, it's everything everything together. So um, it's a constant struggle for me to let go. I think also just working out things that you do that you learn about yourself. So I, I know on holiday now, there's a risk from a smartphone point of view of checking emails regularly, right? It's, it's, an, it's an addictive thing. It's kind of yeah. changed our brains to want to just keep, you get a slight, a slight uh, boost. Dopamine release when you check it. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, yeah. 
Um, so what I will do now is like mentally schedule the time. And often it's when my, my three-year-old Finn, when he's having a nap, if he has a nap between one and two, I'll go, right, I'm not going to touch any work stuff or emails unless I have an idea I want to write down, fine. And I'll get the laptop out at one o'clock, have a look at what's going on. Anything urgent, no bash, you know, the laptop goes down. Whereas in the past, I'm sort of not enjoying my holidays as much because I'm kind of a bit too always on. So I have to kind of, I've learned to tone myself down basically over the years. Yeah, that certainly resonates a lot with me. What do you read on holiday out of interest? Do you read uh, fiction or non-fiction? Uh, do you know what? Last or since, since being a parent, my reading has fallen off a cliff. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't I, happen. That's true, actually. And, <laughs> and I, I struggle. My attention span's not, not good enough at the moment to do it because you always have to kind of watch out whether one of them is running off or something. So if you're going to read, you want to be like a nice half an hour to an hour of, of calm time. So I, I really have stopped. I also find it... In the evening, sometimes I'm just so exhausted that I'm, I'm not great at reading. Polly, my wife, she's really good at reading the evening. And I'll often read like Men's Health or something, or <laughs> we're quite into design, so living, etc., and L decoration and things. Oh, yeah. Um, and then in terms of, I know that means I'm going to be culturally a bad person, but I do a lot of podcasts. Um, but sadly, most of them are quite businessy um, related as well. So I'm a bit sort of over indexing on businessy stuff, really, I'm afraid. Yeah, well, exactly the same with me. What 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 are your favourite podcasts then, if that's your preferred uh, so, medium? Yeah, uh, so Diary of a CEO, which is Steve Bartlett, who yeah, I'm obsessed, friendly with, and then he's ended up joining our board, and he's fantastic. So we love that. Um, Jake Humphrey, he he did one with our founder, and he's quite interesting in terms of some of the psychology. Mm. Um, there's some US ones about growth stories of, of businesses out there. So there's a, there's a venture capital fund that does one um, from VMG, they're called. Um, uh, Jason Calcanis, love what he does. Okay, I haven't heard of that one. Yes, yeah, it's called um, This Week in Startups, I think. Okay, cool. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, um, Eat Sleep. Um, uh, not Eat, uh, Bruce Daisley, who used to run Twitter. Yep. Yeah, I saw him on uh, Steve Bartlett. I bought his book. Yep. I've got, yeah. I've got, I've got an addiction to buy. I mean, I'm the same as you. I, I, I love to read. I just don't have any time. Um, so I have an addiction to buying books that I hear on podcasts and then just never reading them. Um, which is a, which is a bit of a stupid habit to have. Yeah, well, so for me, I, I drive 45 minutes ish, maybe an hour each way, and I, I get a decent podcast in probably once a day. And then the other, the other time, I'm just no, everything's off. I'm just sort of like in my own thoughts and just driving along and. Quite not usually in the morning. Actually, I'm sort of just thinking about stuff, and in the evening, I'm I'm kind of calming down and just put a podcast on, and I feel more sort of focused on on I've kind of dump, trying to dump work if I can, as it were. Mm. So full silence on the way into work, not even any music. Sometimes, yeah. Really, sort of, well, I haven't well, tried, I have to try that. There's <laughs> very little time I get to myself where there's not stuff going on, and sort of in the car is kind of quiet time and thinking time. Yeah, interesting, brilliant. Um, you mentioned um. Polly a few times there, um, who's your, your wife and, and a fellow entrepreneur. Um, she has her own women's workwear fashion brand called The Fold, which I think you're a, an investor and advisor with as well. Um, two sort of type A, I mean, I don't know Polly, but I'm just, as, as an entrepreneur, most of them are type A sort of driven um, uh, individuals. How do you guys um, manage your time um, so that you, so you spend enough of it together? Um, a number of our guests I know block the time out so I try and do it with my wife but how do you guys manage it or do you struggle with it uh, yeah of course we struggle to manage you know juggling two businesses two kids and life is difficult I think 
there's much more of a supportive element to it when you know what they're going through. So, for instance, we, we both had our vaccination this week and we both felt really rough afterwards. And um, Polly had a board meeting and which means, and I know, God, that's a really hard day because there's a lot of work getting involved and lots of people to, to have conversations with. And that, that's really tough. So I'm probably more empathetic towards that than I would be if I wasn't doing my, my same role. I think something strangely that helps us a lot is we have a wonderful nanny called Sarah and um, we rely on her a lot, which means some of the things that maybe parents uh, are ordinarily doing, we're relying on her to do. And we're very, we, that, that some of, you know, some of the organisational side of things maybe of uh, bring up kids and it's sort of one level thing that might tip us over the edge, but it's quite controlled and we're all quite organised as a, as a team and maybe it allows us in the evening not to do quite so much admin around two young kids um, and we try and wind down with a bit, bit of TV and a bit, a bit of food and things. So uh, I also think it's quite important to get some time away together. And that's been quite difficult. Uh, and the COVID, obviously, you can't travel around. But I think, you know, I think couples always say this when you're, you need to make sure you have holidays for yourself, not just sort of with kids, because, you know, looking after kids is sort of a job in itself. So we're in that sort of phase where you have to really make sure you're going out for dinner sometimes and really make sure you're going for a weekend on your own. Um, and obviously that's been harder with COVID. So we're quite looking forward to later if we can do a few weekend, weekends away and things. Yeah, absolutely. We, we got, I'm, I'm completely the same. Me and Meg's try and try and get that time away. We got, we got, we got lucky last year though. We went to, I don't know if you know the, ho- the hotel time in, uh, in Oxford. It's really, really nice. I thoroughly recommend it. Um, and, um, yeah, we got in there just in that tiny window in between the sort of winter lockdown. So we were very happy to get that in. Um, Brilliant. Okay, I'm going to go to the rapid fire round now. Um, so feel free to go into as many details on these three questions as you like. Um, but the first one is best moment at Huel and why? Oh, we've had so many. My my favourite moments maybe is we have something called the Hoskers, which is right. Oscars, which is our, our Christmas party, and we and we got these these awards, these sort of golden golden bottles, and it's a really nice moment to celebrate something funny in the year, and people get awards for stupid stuff or something you're really proud of, and um, everyone's there and dressed up, and it's sort of yeah, I feel the most proud at that moment of the year. We've, we've done it you know three or four times now, and um, we obviously didn't have our party um, normally Christmas time twenty twenty. But we did it virtually and it still worked and it's really funny and it, uh, it's like finishing off the end of the year on a on a high note of celebrating all the cool stuff we did love that um what do most people get wrong about you if anything uh, i think there's a general preconceived view of a ceo and particularly maybe one like me if you started off in consultancy where you're it's quite sort of city city and analytical and numbersy and stuff. And actually people tell me that I'm quite human and they're kind of surprised I'm quite sort of down to earth and quite calm and relaxed and things. So um, I think judging people, yeah, judge you from the outside of it. Even as someone said to me when they first met me, they, they the, afterwards I thought, oh, actually he was quite easy to talk to. And I didn't, didn't think that I was a bit worried about meeting, you know, so you, you I think early on in your career, particularly you, you see the CEO and you go, oh my God, I want to speak to them and what, what might they say? And actually, people generally find me reasonably easy to talk to. Nice. And uh, I can tell, I, th- I think I could tell anyway, that you're a bit of a, 
you, you mentioned earlier you love design. I think you probably love brands and seeing other startups. If you're, if you're anything like me, other than Huel and Fold and Parler, obviously, um, um, <laughs> who, <laughs> which brand are you telling all your mates about right now? And you think is just awesome that maybe they haven't heard of. I reckon they probably might have now, but Babylon. Okay, the, yeah, this is the uh, uh, the uh, virtual doctors. Virtual, so I remember a year and a half ago, you signed up to Babylon pre-COVID. And for me, it's like, hang on, I don't have to go and queue and go to a GP and hang around people who are probably coughing all over me. And I can book a slot for 12.05 when I've got a gap in a meeting and have a five-minute video call with someone to tell me what's wrong with me. And I've used it three times since. And before then, I hadn't actually been to a GP for about 10 years, I think. And I've just kind of, you know, various things have happened when I need a bit of help. And um, it's just incredible. And I think now, I, don't, I think there's other people doing it as well. Um, mm. And But just imagine the fact you might have a, think of the efficient, it's a bit like an Uber thing, right? Imagine if there's someone in Wales who is a GP who's available, but there's no one nearby who needs them. And there's two people in, you know, Birmingham who are waiting and you can just mix it up. So it's like a beautiful match between supply and demand and it's a great time-saving thing so i think it feels like that will be the norm going forward yeah absolutely it makes it makes a lot of sense doesn't it yeah less of a sort of like sexy brand that you might have expected me to say it, it, like yeah it's, it's not what i was expecting but i like <laughs> i like i like it anyway <laughs> uh brilliant okay and um the final question uh which is the one that i asked to all of the guests on the show what is the uh, one small change you've made that you wish you made earlier in life from a what from a work point of view can be anything. Understanding your yourself. So I've done quite a few personality profile type things and you're kind of like, ah, that's why I do this. <laughs> and, you know, people go to school and they get told you should be an accountant or a teacher or something. And it's like, hang on, what if your personality is not quite right for that? Or your, your skills are, where are you strong? Where are you weak? All that sort of stuff. I love it. So, um, I wish I'd done it a little bit earlier, but I'm quite into sort of understanding myself. And I think there's a whole big growth mindset bit about do things you're, um, keep, keep, keep developing on things, you'll get better at them. But equally, there's a do stuff you're really good at. And I think if people understand that earlier in life, uh, then they'll make better choices. Which, uh, was there a specific test that you've done? Because I know there's sort of a few different ones, right? Uh, there's one I did about, I think it was called DISC, where it had four yeah. grids and it was a like dominant, influential, whatever, uh, social and conscientious or something. And I was quite high on the dominant one. And I was like, oh, okay, I didn't really realize that. And I think now I'm quite high on the influential one and lower on the dominant one just by learning that and knowing, hey, do you know, I can be quite influential. I don't need to be kind of like banging my fist down. And um, so if I'd done that a bit earlier, it would have been, been quite useful too. Brilliant. Love it. Well, James, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I'm sure you're an incredibly busy man and really appreciate the time uh, that we got to spend together. Um, learned a lot and it's been, it's been wonderful to chat. Thank you and thank you. And um, thank you for founding Parler and really pleased to be a customer with you guys. And oh, that's very kind. That's very kind. Well, we've got some, uh, some new NPD coming out um, relatively soon as well. So um, I'll be interested to hear your, your thoughts on that. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, James. All the best. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, guys. Simon again here. Just one more thing before you guys go. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I really hope it gave you an immense amount of value. If I could ask just one thing of you all, please subscribe to the podcast. Please share it. Please write a review if you enjoyed it. 
Please talk to your friends about it. The bigger the podcast gets, the better the guests I can get on and the more value I can give back to you all. So that's it from me. I'll see you on the next one. And until next time, enjoy the ride.